If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 5 this morning. Mark chapter 5. I'm going to read the text from verse 1 all the way down through verse 20. Offer a short prayer, and then we will dive right in. Mark chapter 5. Starting in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he, that is Christ, got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis things Jesus had done for him Everyone was amazed. Thus reads the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the physical strength and spiritual energy to preach your word with fidelity, with clarity, with urgency, with relevancy, with humility, and with liberty. Lord, that you would guard my heart that you would govern my words, and that you would guide my thoughts. Edit in what you want in, and edit out what you want out. And may the gospel fall on good ground today, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Screams pierce the air in the rural village of Laos. A pastor who was visiting the village headed toward the loud cries to find out what was happening. He was surprised to see a 16-year-old boy chained to the wooden floor of his family's home. What happened to your boy? He asked the parents. Why is he chained up? The parents looked sad. Our son has been sick for many years, his father said. He becomes normal for several hours, but then he loses his mind again several times a day, his mother said. The parents had spent all their money trying to find a cure. But the situation steadily had gotten worse until they reluctantly decided to leave their son in chains all the time to prevent him from harming himself and others. 
He had been bound to the wooden floor for the past six months. What do you do? Put yourself in the pastor's shoes. What do you say? How do you wipe away their tears? How do you provide hope? How do you carry the cares of your people? How do you explain to the parents that God has a purpose all the while knowing that it is more important to their hearts that you are there and will be there? Now put yourself in the parents' shoes. I mean, they're heartbroken. This would have been a devastating blow to them, to the father in particular. I mean, it was his only son. Where do you turn? Mark 5, 25 says, you've already endured so much at the hands of many physicians and have spent all that you have, and yet there has not been any help at all, but rather things have grown worse. Now put yourself in the boy's shoes. Or maybe better put, put yourself in his chains. Now ask yourself, where is the cure? No help at all? No relief? Rather, it's growing worse and worse. You say, I just want relief from the pain. I just want relief from the suffering. We find a similar story in Mark chapter 5, don't we? In fact, it is the most extreme case of demon possession and suffering you will find in all the scriptures. I submit to you today that no one suffered more than legion. This is the last word on suffering, the ravages of sin and demon possession. As it relates to this man who is called Legion, Satan had ravaged this man's life as much as possible unto death. His life was fully in the devil's hands and the community could not and would not help him. He was in chains physically, but he was also in chains spiritually and nothing could set him free. That is until Jesus shows up. There's a scene in Green Mile where just before John Coffey's execution, they go to put that black satin bag over his head and, and he begs them, please, boss, don't put that thing over my face. Don't put me in the dark, for I'm afraid of the dark. And then just before he's executed, he whispers softly to his soul, I'm in heaven, I'm in heaven, I'm in heaven, 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 over and over again. And every time I read this passage, I'm reminded of that scene. I mean, the circumstances are strikingly similar, aren't they? Except Legion is in the dark, and he's not whispering, I'm in heaven, I'm in heaven, I'm in heaven. He is crying out in agony, in the dark, I'm in hell, I'm in hell, I'm in hell. And yet, do you remember what Tom Hanks says to John Coffey? He says, John Coffey, electricity will now flow through your body until you are dead in accordance with the state law. May God have mercy on your soul. Look down at verse 19 of our passage. And he did not let him, that is Jesus, but said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. That's what the legion needed in order to be set free. And guess what? That's what you and I need if we are going to be set free. Listen, the power of Jesus has not changed. Jesus is more than powerful enough to set you free from any evil thing that has you in chains. In a word, Jesus is our chain breaker. Jesus is Lord of the chains, and if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus has the power to set you free from anything and everything that has you bound if you do three things. Here's our outline for this morning. If you bow down to Jesus, if you beg Jesus, and if you believe in Jesus. Let's look at what it means to bow down to Jesus. 
the text says, they came to the other side of the sea and to the country of the Gerasenes, verse 1. You remember how Jesus got to this shore. They left the northwest shore by Capernaum, got in their little boat, started across the sea intending to sail to the eastern shore, for it was a more unpopulated area. The disciples probably thought he was wanting some rest. Maybe they were glad to get some rest from the massive crushing crowds. They got in their little boat, set sail, and it started to storm, and Jesus calms the storm. They were thrown off course by the storm, but eventually they got back on course. And they sailed across that placid lake until dawn. They ended up on the eastern shore, and they were about six miles around the curve from the city of Capernaum. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes. Just to add a footnote, Mark and Luke both say it was the country of the Gerasenes. Matthew says it was the country of the Gadarenes. It's not hard to put together. Let's put it together. It's both. Gerasenes, because there is a little town right there called Gerasa, it is a small town of Gerasa that came, they came near, as I said, about six miles around the curve of the lake of the eastern shore. So it is the country of the Gerasenes. However, a little further south and inland, there was a bigger and more important town and maybe the country seat called Gadara. So while it is the village or town or country of Gerasa, it was the region that associated itself with Gadara. So it was the country of the Gerasenes. If you looked at the village and Gadara, if you looked at the larger region, that sort of gave it its name. In any case, here's the key. It was Gentile territory. And here Jesus is on Gentile grounds with his disciples, all of whom have gotten out of their little boats that have come across the sea. They are expecting a little bit of rest. They are away from their Jewish brothers. It's pretty open country there, pretty rural. This would have been pretty good time for them to get a little rest. Only that's not what happens. Verse 2 says, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. This is not your run-of-the-mill sick person. This is not a welcome wagon either. This is, for all intents and purposes, your worst nightmare. This is a man from the tombs who comes racing down the slope to the edge of the lake. He's defined as having an unclean spirit. It's probably barely dawn. They probably have just tied up their boats. Maybe a little dock was available there. And immediately, at the water's edge, is a madman. Now, it says he came from the tombs. These tombs were not manufactured cemeteries surrounded by plush gardens. They were burial chambers in that time in and around Israel. And the chains here served as an ancient form of psychiatric hospitals. You can see them in various places in the world even today. And you can see them right there where the town of Gerasa is. They were carved out, these, these cemeteries, these tombs, right out of the hillside. There were caves dug into the side of mountains. And that's what he's doing in the tombs. Well, he, he lives there, in verse 3 it says. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. He was a, not a tomb raider, but a tomb dweller. In ancient times, this would be the typical terror of a demon-possessed, deranged person. And here's a man who is more at home dwelling with the dead than living with the living. Worse than being homeless, he dwelt among the tombs. This is an ancient times was a, a sanatorium of sorts. He is defined as having an unclean spirit. He is an insane man. This simply the term for demon possessed is the term for demon. It clearly refers to demons because the man is designated as a demon possessed man down in verse 18. And so this unclean spirit is synonymous with a demon. And so to put it mildly, this man is demon-possessed. Verse 3 goes on to say, And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Verse 4, Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken to pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. This man had supernatural strength. And the community tried to do anything they could to tame this wild man. So they did the only thing that they knew to do. They chained him. In the ancient world, all you did with a maniac like this was restrain him. If nothing else, at least it would keep him from harming himself and others. 
So they thought, well, in this man's case, that didn't work. No, the demons within gave him, this man, superhuman strength that hulked up and was able to break the chains. In fact, Luke says he would break the chains and be driven by the demons into the wilderness. This is just a total out-of-control maniac. In fact, the word for subdue, the Maasai in Greek, is used for taming wild animals. You say, you tame wild animals, not human beings. I think that's the point Mark is getting at. You are dealing here with some kind of wild animal. Thankfully, Jesus knows a thing or two about wild animals. You'll recall Jesus in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights, Mark says in chapter 1, being tempted by Satan, and it says he was with the wild animals. I love what David Redding says in his commentary about the demon-possessed man. He says, Legion is Samson gone berserk. Satan entered this man, and now he was Samson on steroids. And yet the stronger, hear this, the stronger he got, the weaker he got. The stronger he got, the more chains he broke through, the more he hated himself. Luke adds, just to make matters worse, that he hadn't put on any clothes for a long time. Which leads us to conclude that he was not only exposed to the elements, to hot days and the cold nights in Gerasene, especially in the wintertime, which would have been this time, that the story occurs, but that he was perverted. He was as wicked as wicked gets. And his nakedness is related to his sexual perversion. He is a sexual predator. He is a sociopath who is dangerous to himself and to everyone around him. Who knows who he harmed? Who knows who he had hurt? Who knows whom he had killed? We do know at least one person he had harmed. One person he was hurting. One person he was killing himself. He suffered from self-injury. Verse 5 says that constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. He's sleepless. He's restless. He's wandering in and out of the tombs, in and out of the mountains. He was driven into the desert by demons, tormented, tortured, and turmoiled. This is a living hell for this man. This man was completely subsumed to demonic power and presence. Seemingly, nothing good can come out of this. Nothing good, nothing left, nowhere to turn. And desperate for relief, he grabs stones and begins hacking himself to pieces. He hacks away at his flesh with stones. He's a cutter. In fact, in Matthew 8, 28, it says, and no one could pass by that way because he was extremely violent. He was violently cutting himself and anyone who would dare to draw near to him. There is no one like this in scripture. There are more demons in this man than there are people in that country. But notice it says, anymore. Meaning, this man used to be like us. That's a scary thought. You know what it means? If it weren't for the grace of God, there go I. Because anything but Jesus Christ gives you the power and takes it away at the same time. You know what I learned from Legion? is that the more power I get through serving something or someone other than Jesus, the less joy I have, the less stability I have, the less freedom I have, and on and on it goes. That means that this guy is not, a, not in a different category from you and from me. He's just at the end of the spectrum, at the end of the continuum. He's at the end of the road we are on. May I submit to you that the underlying reality here is true of every single person that does not know Jesus. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Grace, describes his before Christ life this way. He says it was a zoo of lust, a barrelum of ambition, a nursery of fear, a harem of fondled hatreds. He concluded, my name was Legion. And that's the testimony of every single person who has not bowed down before Christ. This is how evil works. In fact, in the life of the believer, this is what sin does, isn't it? 
Sin causes us to gash ourselves with stones until our blood runs. Sin always pushes us towards our destruction. The stones cry out, no one loves you, God hates you, stress more, you're alone, you're lost, so go for blood. Just go ahead, hack yourself to pieces, gash yourself, or we drink to numb the pain. We lie to ourselves to cover up the misery of our dashed hopes. We say, don't tell me I'm not free, don't tell me I'm not free, I can free myself from anything that you try to bind me with. Except, of course, we can't free ourselves from what is within. Sin is always self-destructive. And so we feel shame, isolation, and hopelessness. It's one of the devil's favorite strategies, isn't it? And so we gash ourselves. It's whatever we love so much that it gashes us to achieve it. It's like the tyrant who summoned one of his subjects into his presence and ordered him to make a chain. The poor blacksmith that was his occupation had to go to work and forge the chain. When it was done, he brought it to the presence of the tyrant and was ordered to take it away and make it twice in length. He brought it again to the tyrant and again he was ordered to double it. Back he came when he had obeyed the order and the tyrant looked at it, then commanded the servants to bind the man hand and foot with the chain he had made and cast him into prison. That's what the devil does with us. He makes us forge our own chain and then binds us hand and foot and cast us into outer darkness. But as bad as this is, and I hope I've painted a picture for you, take heart. Because the power of this kind of evil is no match for the power of Jesus Christ. Because see, the unclean spirits in this man were powerful and destructive, but when Legion saw Jesus from a distance, he ran to meet Jesus at the boat and bowed at his feet. He bowed down before Jesus. That's it. The first step to freedom for us this morning is that we have to bow down before Jesus. Verse 6 says, seeing Jesus from a distance. Underscore that word. We're going to come back to it. It's extremely important in the Gospel of Mark. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. This man, presumably sitting up on his little perch on the hill in one of the tombs, and perhaps sees the, the little boats being tied up, and the, the demons realize they have got new victims. These demons are, are flying down the hill, screaming with this demonic shriek, ready to attack, ready to maim, ready to kill. But the man sees them tying up on shore and Jesus walking along the beach, and he realizes that his healing is on the way. And so here he comes, flying down the hill. He comes running to Jesus and sees Jesus for who he really is. And he's in a hurry to get there, but not to do him harm. This man is attracted to Jesus. He's a magnet for mercy. He doesn't walk and say, oh, this is interesting. No, he runs to Jesus. Notice this. This man is on his way to healing because it says he bowed down before him. It's the word proskuneo in Greek. And it means to worship. It means to demonstrate submission, to show respect for someone greater than yourself. This man falls face first at the feet of Jesus. This is the posture of worship. He's now subdued. He falls prostrate at the feet of Jesus. Now, the demons have no interest in worshiping Jesus, but this man sure does. No one could control him. No one could restrain him. No one was able to bind him. No one was strong enough to subdue him. But the presence of the Lord Jesus cuts him at the knees and flattens him like a pancake. This may be the first time that this man has laid down in days. You see, the man chooses to worship. For you and I, worship is a choice. And even when things are out of control, when life is spinning out of control, you must go to God and worship. And this man goes all the way. He goes all the way to God. Not so that Jesus would strike him. Jesus is not some ancient prototype, Dr. Kevorkian. Legion is not proposing Jesus perform the first mercy killing to end his misery. No, he is worshiping God in the middle of his suffering, hoping for a mercy healing. This man bows to Jesus. This man worships. Let me ask you, 
What do you do when you know there's nothing you can do? What do you do when your life is falling apart? It's easy to worship God when the sun is shining, but what about when the darkest is descending? This man tore his chains, gashed himself with his face in the dirt. Legion, worship God. You can worship God with a broken heart. Do you know that? Can you worship God in chains? Can you worship God in the tombs? Can you worship God in the desert? By the way, this God has a name, and his name is Jesus. In fact, what do the demons call him? In verse 7, they call him the son of the most high God. Which leads us to the next key that unlocks our chains. We must beg Jesus for mercy. Verse 7 says, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you by God, do not torment me. This is the mark of someone who has met the real Jesus. You recall in verse 2, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And here in verse 7, we see the next step to healing, the key to unlocking our freedom. This man comes running to Jesus. He, he sees Jesus for who he is. And did you notice this? This man is on his way to healing because he not only runs to Jesus and bows down before him, but then he screams at the top of his lungs. What do you want from me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, swear to me, is literally the words, by God, that you will not torment me. This man kneels down and says, I, I think you're going to kill me. Because when you get near Jesus, you sense what the legion sense. That is, Jesus is in absolute authority. He is the most high. He is the judge of all the earth. And he has the power, not just to destroy you physically, but even more scary, to destroy you spiritually. He recognizes the dual nature of Jesus. He sees him for who he really is. He is the God-man, truly God, truly man. The name Jesus affirms the humanity of Christ. Jesus, son of the most high God. Son of the most high affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. It's a glorious title for God in the Old Testament. And it usually goes like this. The most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. And that is this man's recognition. That Jesus was the most high God. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, here latent within the man's confession is a, an allusion to the triunity of God. It's a reference to both God the Father and God the Son. He says, God the Father is the most high God. This is the true God and God the Son. He says, this is the true God distinguishing him from the false gods that got him pinned down. And Jesus is the son of the most high God. He is God in flesh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. Jesus is the son of God. He's the Lord over all principalities, all powers, all rulers of this present world, all rulers of the darkness. He is the sovereign and has authority to control everything to execute everyone, to internally incarcerate you in the lake of fire. And yet, I love this, he's merciful. And he recognizes this. This man has the audacity to beg Jesus. This man has audacious faith. I mean, it's almost as if he is ordering God not to torment him. And this is where it gets really practical. Because when this man sees Jesus, he says to him, don't hurt me. The word for hurt me or torture is basineus in the Greek. It's the worst possible kind of experience. It's torture. And that's what the devil does, doesn't he? He's showing us what the devil always does to us. Don't kid yourself about Satan. Demonism is neither funny nor phony. The devil will show you the sovereignty of Jesus. The devil will show you plenty of Jesus. He will let you experience the power of Jesus, who even lets you see your need to obey Jesus, but he will never let you see the mercy of Jesus. He will never let you see the grace of Jesus. 
The devil will let you see the power. The devil will let you see his holiness, but not the mercy. Not the mercy of Jesus. He wants to take your life over. He'll say, that'll destroy you. If you bow down and worship him, if you beg him for mercy, if you believe in him, it'll destroy you. If you give yourself to him, it will destroy you. But see, this man had another spirit working on him. And as this man felt the joy, the grace of Jesus, something of the glory of God, he knows that the power that the Son of God wields, his power is so great that if you beg him, if I beg him for mercy, no matter how demonized you are, he will give it to you. And that's the point. The point is Jesus shows him mercy. Here is the mercy healing he had been longing for. Because if you look carefully at verse 8, we are told Jesus had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Notice how Jesus does exorcisms. No special lights. No mute music. No incantations. Jesus is not some Joe Schmo off the streets who stayed at a Holiday Inn once. Walking up to this man with a, a priestly robe on, you know, the one, the black shirt with the white collar like they do in the old exorcism movies. He doesn't just come swinging incense everywhere, glowing in the dark, dripping Shekinah juice everywhere. None of that. The Lord Jesus just said, it's time for you to raise up out of here. Jesus has the power to cast out the legion of demons with a simple word of command. And if he has the power to do that, then you better believe he has the power to deliver you from whatever is enslaving you. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, I don't believe Jesus would stop for a demon. But I do believe Jesus stopped for the man. He stopped for the demon-possessed man. You know what this means? This means that Jesus will stop for you. He might pass by, but he'll never pass you up. And while he has every single person who has ever lived, who would ever believe to worry about, he has every single second of every single day for all eternity for you. That's Jesus. That's who he is. He will, quote, unquote, stop everything he is doing to help you, to heal you, and to free you. He has every single person who has ever lived to be worried about, but he has every single second for you, to stop for you. Jesus stopped and slowed everything down for this exorcism. He slowed it down for the man. He stopped the demons in their tracks, and Jesus Christ shows mercy to the man. Because you see, at some points it says, the man says. And at other points it says, the demon said. If you look carefully at verse 10, it says, he begged him over and over again. And he says, do not torment me. This is not the demons talking. This is the man begging Jesus not to torment him. Legion is begging Jesus, literally begging him many times over. He said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begs him. You see that word them in your Bible? In verse 10, some manuscripts actually have him. Which makes more sense because it's the man who is demon-possessed that is talking to Jesus. It's the man who's begging Christ. And it's amazing what Jesus does next. Let's look at what happens. Verse 11 says, Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain, and the demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Verse 13 says, Jesus gave them permission? What? And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Now, undoubtedly, you're probably wondering why in the world would Jesus give them the demons' permission to be sent into the swine so that they may enter them? 
Inevitably, you'll ask me, why did they go into the pigs? I'm happy to report I have no idea (laughs) why they went into the pigs. I'm not in the business of interacting with demons very often. I have no idea why Jesus permitted them to go into the pigs. But let me give you a few thoughts to think about. The first thought is this. There are two exchanges in this passage. One of them where Jesus gives someone permission to do something. That is the demons. And how does it end for them? Very badly. But there's another instance in this story where the man begs Jesus that he might accompany him. He's like, I don't want to stay with these crazy folk. I'm changed man. I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no. How does it end for him? Very well. I think we're seeing the authority of Jesus on display. And if we're saying, I don't know why he would send them into the pigs, maybe there's a crucial element that we're missing in the plan of God. Jesus knows what he's doing. There's another way. This is conjecture. This is subjective. But I think it's fair play because it's a great connection in Scripture. So turn to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, listen to this. Verse 1, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation which did not call on my name. Listen to this, I have spread out my hands. What kind of picture is that? All day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. And here it is, who sit among what? Graves and spend the night in secret places. You say, okay, if you want us to make the connection, the next thing that follows has to be pigs. Look at what follows. Who eat swine's flesh? And the broth of unclean meat is in their pots. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. What does this mean? This could mean that Jesus, in permitting the demons to go into the swine, is saying, I am the fulfillment of that passage. I am the one who's going to stretch out my hands to a rebellious people. I am the Savior. But if he's the Savior, then that means you are the rebellious person. Jesus is not in some kind of struggle with the powers of sin, with the powers of Satan and his demons. In any moment, in any felt swoop, God could take all of the demons that exist, myriads times myriad, and he could put them in chains instantaneously. He could do whatever he wanted, any time he wanted. Here's the, here's the third way to see this. The fact that he doesn't do it then indicates that he doesn't want to do it because they serve a purpose. Remember, the devil is Jesus' devil. And God has his purposes. He could stop the whole satanic operation instantaneously, chain them all, and throw them into everlasting torment, but he has his purposes. And oftentimes, he, he lets evil run its full gamut because it brings him full glory. Because it brings out the glory of his grace. And it brings out the wonder of his wrath. He is in complete control of all demonic powers. This is not one, there is not one rogue, renegade, demon in existence in the supernatural world that does anything that God doesn't want him to. I love what Martin Luther says. The devil is God's lapdog. And so Jesus gave them permission. Why? Well, maybe, for one, because when they hit the pigs, it would be proof that they had left the man. Maybe it was for the man. 
Jesus is visibly making a demonstration of his power to free a person from 2,000 demons. Secondly, it could prove the massive supernatural power that he has. And thirdly, to do this puts you on notice of the destructive purposes of sin. Because it doesn't take long for them to drown the pigs in the sea. Now look, if you find comic relief from this story, good. But be warned, because lest we end up like the man in Matthew chapter 12, where it says, now when the unclean spirit goes out of the man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. Be warned. What you have to do Here's, here's very practical application. What you have to do is you have to think of your soul as a room. When you are in sin, that room is full of dark forces, maybe even demons, dark people, and darkness. And there are three ways to get rid of the darkness in your soul. First, you have to, as C.S. Lewis says, imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes in to renovate that house. And at first, perhaps, you understand what he's doing. He's, he's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks and so on. And, and so you know the job's needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But after a while, he starts knocking the house around in a way that hurts abominably. And he does not seem to make sense. And you say, what on earth is he up to? And the explanation is he is building quite a different house than the one you ever thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, and running up towers and making courtyards. You see, you thought when you first came to him, he was going to make you into a decent little cottage, C.S. Lewis says, but he is building a palace. Why? Because he intends to live in it himself. Jesus must take residence in your heart and life, and it is he who must go to the door. But here's how we live the Christian life. I don't know about you, but when I was raised in my home, we had what was called the front room. You heard of the front room? The front room was the one that had the carpet that was always vacuumed that you dare not step in there, especially not with shoes on. We had piano in the front room, had big window in the front room. And if, if you're like me, in my case, I had plastic on the couches. <laughs> but when people walked by that front room, they made some assumptions about our family. Wow, look at the front room. Look how nice their house is. They must have it all together. Jesus must be in the front room. They must have Jesus. But see, what we do is we leave him in the front room, don't we? He needs access to the whole house if he's going to come to the door in the time of need. He must take residence in the whole house. I love Martin Luther. He describes the devil in so many picturesque ways. He says, when you are in the middle of temptation, Satan comes to the door of your heart and he knocks. Guess who comes to the door? Jesus Christ. The devil says, uh, is Martin Luther here? Is Chaz here? Jesus says, nope, he no longer lives here. I do. And it's when the devil sees his hands and his side, he flees immediately. Jesus says, I want everything, and I'm going to turn you into a palace. You need to have God's ruling power come into you. Something has come in from the outside and has shaken your foundation and is filling you with power. It is the king of power who has come in. And he doesn't just come in, he guards the door too. Jesus is more than a carpenter. Secondly, you have to, you have to cast it out. You have to fight it with every fiber of your being. You have to resist it. You have to reject it. You have to renounce it. Lastly, by way of application, you have to fill the room with light. And as your life fills with better people, better things to do, more reasons to live in the light, there is no more room left for the demons. There's less room for the darkness. Listen, there's nothing more practical than this. There is nothing more important than this. Look at verse 13. 
And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the bank into the sea, and about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. By the way, about two miles south of the old village of Gersera, there is the, there's this kind of a, a slope. This was suicide. You could call this a, a swine dive. This was a premature pork sale. <laughs> Believe this. The kerosenes were down at the water getting out the pigs. For it didn't destroy their meat. In fact, it probably preserved it for a little while, you know, being in the nice cool water. Nobody complained. PETA sure would have. <laughs> they would probably conclude that 2,000 pigs is probably worth more than one man. They probably develop a, an export pork business on the spot. Nobody complained. They just didn't have a plan in place for this kind of meat marketing. Those things aside, the point is everybody understood what was happening. This man was different, and the pigs were dead. And the destruction came fast. I mean, really fast. And that means so did the deliverance. Let's look at this man's deliverance and what he does to receive it. Last point. Look, if you are like this man and you are in this condition, if you're like this demoniac, or maybe you're like that 16-year-old boy at the beginning, remember him? Chained for the past six months because of his illness. And you can hardly bear the sound of the chains of your spiritual bondage. And like Legion, you, you just can't get free. Or maybe like the little boy, for the past six months, you've fallen prey again and again to that one sin that is causing you to gas yourself with stones. You feel naked. You feel exposed, open, and laid bare to the eyes with him with whom you have to do. You feel like everyone and everybody can hear the chains clinking in your life. You feel isolated, away from everybody else, screaming, crying out all the time, crying out in the dark, crying out in agony. I mean, in so many ways, we're like this demonic man, aren't we? If we're honest, this is oftentimes a picture of us. We're all isolated to some degree. We're all to some degree in darkness. We're all to some degree crying out in agony. We're all to some degree have a longing to be healed, to be free, just to be able to sit down for just a minute. We just pace and pace and pace and pace and pace in our sin. We all want to be clothed and sane again. You know what we have to do? We have to believe in Jesus Christ. We have to run to the cross. There's a phrase in verse 6 which says, seeing Jesus from a distance. He ran up. He bowed down before him. That phrase, from a distance, I told you we'd come back to it, is a light vort in the Gospel of Mark. In my doctoral studies, I had to try to learn German. You know what your doctor teaches you? How much you don't know. And in German is like Greek. It's all Greek to me. But I know this one word, light vort. It's a key word in the Gospel of Mark. And as one author argues, apo macrothane, that's the word from a distance, is the key to unlocking the purpose of the book. It shows up again in Mark chapter 15 and verse 40. And the text tells us that in that lonely hour, a group of women were watching the crucifixion. Here it is, from a distance. In a sense, they are given a stance towards the cross that we can share. They stand in wonder before the God who has come close to us in the cross of Jesus Christ and to live in hope for the better things to come. Now, to be clear, I don't think the legion had the cross in mind, but I do believe Mark does. More importantly, Jesus surely does. Mark says you have to run to the cross in faith in Jesus Christ. You have to believe in Jesus you have to see Jesus looking down at you and saying, I forgive you. I've come to free you. I've come to give you mercy. You say, how? No way. It can't be that easy. You're right. It isn't. Because for Jesus to forgive you, for Jesus to heal you, for Jesus to free you, he had to be stripped naked. 
He had to be imprisoned. Jesus Christ was isolated and crucified outside the gate. Jesus Christ cried out in the dark, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did it for you. See him chained and nailed to a piece of wood for you. You see, he's able to heal the little boy. He's able to heal the demoniac. He's able to heal you because he took your place. Jesus could come into this man's life and heal him because Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for him and paid the penalty and took all those things on himself. He bore them himself. He was stripped so that we could be clothed. He was thrown into the deepest despair and agony so that we could know God's love and forgiveness and inner quietness. He too was placed in a tomb. You see, for Jesus to free you from your chains, he had to put himself in them. And while Jesus' name wasn't legion, he did have 12 legions of angels at his disposal. But you know what it says? But then how will scripture be fulfilled? Here's Jesus Christ surrounded by legions of angels, but Jesus does not call on them. Those legions do not save him. Do you know why? Because Jesus came into the world to die for us so that we who are in chains can be free. He was executed so that we will not have to be. He was plunged into the darkness. Remember, darkness came down. And as he did, he did it all so that we could be brought into the light. That's the reason why you and I can be forgiven. That's the reason why you and I can be clothed and in our right minds, because Jesus Christ came and took our darkness. There's only one God in the history of the world that was ever gashed with stones for you, and his name was Jesus Christ. He was bound in shackles and chains. He was broken to pieces. All of those legions of angels didn't help him because he did it for you. Jesus knows what it's like to be among the tombs. Except he didn't live among them. He was laid in one for you. Because, see, he knew the only way to bring legion out of the tombs was to put himself in one. He knew the only way to cast out the demons was that he was going to have to go to the cross and be drowned in the sea of your sin. He knew what it would cost him to save us from death. He felt the chains of death literally closing in on him as he cast out the demons from the and so, what does all this mean? What do we do in response to Christ's mercy? He says it. He says, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's what we must do. Let's make a couple of applications as we close. Just list them out pretty quick. First, for the Christian, on the other side of freedom, we must expect struggles with unseen forces. As Christians, we fight on the front lines of an invisible war. Chuck Swindoll says there is no truce in the invisible war. Demonic activity is both real and relentless. There is no R&R for Satan's army. These soldiers work around the clock seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, year after year. You must expect struggles with unforeseen forces. Second, we must stand firm in the full armor of God. We must equip ourselves in the full armor of God. I call this divine equipment. Third, we must exercise our faith through prevailing prayer. I love that word prevailing. It's a, it's a wartime word. Listen, don't underestimate the power of prayer. I love what one pastor said. When we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. Jim Elliott said, the saint who advances on his knees in prayer never retreats. D.L. Moody wrote a book, Prevailing Prayer. 
And he says, what makes our prayers triumph instead of fail is that it is believing prayer. The the reason Christians don't prevail in prayer is because we don't do it. And if we do do it, it's not believing prayer. Number four, we must engage in battle through taking every thought captive to Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10. We are engaged in a battle, not for our bodies, but for our souls, i.e. our minds. And Satan is constantly engaged forever, bent on our destruction. We must defend ourselves in Christ by taking every thought captive to Christ. Since Satan makes our mind his battlefield, our best defense is to surrender our thoughts to Jesus Christ and ask him to guard and protect us. When we release ourselves to our all-powerful Lord, he takes charge and Satan backs off. Very practically, in the moment of battle, this is what you say, Lord, I need you right now. This very moment, take charge of this situation. I need your thoughts. I need your strength. I need your grace. I need your wisdom. I need your very words. Protect me from fear. Hold me close and get me through this onslaught. And it's when we say that we have no reason to fear. Jesus Christ has already won our spiritual victory. You can't just say no to the devil. It's the word of God and the work of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you're going to cast out demons, that you're going to be free from the evil one. You've got to take out the word of God. You have to take out the gospel and say, get away from me because, or for it is written. It's letting the word of Christ dwell within you richly. And lastly, You must embrace the change. You must use the change that Christ has brought about in our hearts to evangelize. I love what one person said. When gripped by grace, we are no longer the person that we used to be. Listen to this. Jesus met the man in the tombs, healed him, cast the demons out, He was a changed man. Now he's a sane man. Now he can take his place in society. I can imagine him coming home that evening after he met Jesus. His children look out the window and they cry out, Mother, Father's coming. She runs and locks the door. She tells the children, Do not be afraid. The the door is locked. He can't hurt you. But the children are still looking out the window. They say, Mother, that... That isn't like father at all. He isn't running and yelling and screaming. He's calm. He's walking slowly. He's very quiet. Keep still, the mother whispers. Their hearts beat faster as they hear his hand upon the latch. The door will not open. The man knocks gently. His wife does not answer the door. She remains still, hoping that he will go away. Then he says, Mary, open the door. I'm all right. I met Jesus today, and I'm a changed man. She fearfully opens the door while the children shrink in the corner. The man says, don't be afraid, children. I met Jesus today, and I am different. They approach timidly. He puts his arms around them and loves them. He speaks kindly to his wife, and with a prayer of thanksgiving, she prepares supper. When they sit down at the table, he bows his head and says a blessing. They talk until bedtime. Then he gathers them around him and thanks God for the miracle that has happened. They put the children to bed. He sits with his wife beside the fireplace. He takes her hand and he says, thank God, Mary, the old life is over. I met Jesus today and I'm a changed man. We must use the change that God has brought about in our hearts through Christ to evangelize. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for the clear plan for salvation, the clear plan for our freedom. We must bow down to Christ. 
We must beg Christ. But ultimately, we must believe in him. Help us to expect a war with unseen forces. Help us to equip ourselves with the full armor of God. Help us to engage in the battle by taking every thought captive to Christ. Help us to win the war through prevailing prayer. And ultimately, as the gospel takes root in our heart today, as we place our faith and trust in Christ, as we seek to grow in grace, help us to evangelize as a result of the change. We love you. We pray all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.